You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 629, Spinal Tap, the sequel, the pros and cons of busking, the rise of the in-house documentary, and farewell to Jean Knight, Bridget Forsyth and Denny Lane. That's all coming up after Sade and Smooth Operator.
heard that earlier this week for probably the first time in a decade. Mm. And I, I was just reminded what a wonderful record that is. Absolute perfection. Her voice, the production, the bass coming in as it does, the sax solo, and superbly remastered in 2011. Mm. Amazingly, only number 19 in the UK. but number mad. F- isn't it? Mad. Mm. Number five on Billboard. Um, that was in 1984. Sade and Smooth Operator. I agree. It's rather shocking that that only reached number 19 because it felt like that song was mm. everywhere. And it feels like everybody knows that song as well, despite the fact that Sade has sort of been semi-retired for some time hasn't she really but um but the, every, everyone still seems to know it's often gets used on adverts it always makes you think when they're trying to show things that are silky and smooth has it been used on <laughs> galaxy chocolate something like that it always seems to pop up on yeah. those things or like soup adverts or things cup of soup adverts or you know stuff that is luxurious and i love the fact it's kind of luxury pop i've always thought of it as that and mm. actually for all that the single didn't sell diamond life sold and sold and sold yeah, as an album gosh, didn't yes. it i can't think yeah. of any but it doesn't have a copy of Diamond Life. It just, I, you know, she must have made so much money off that, surely. Well, someone made a lot of money off someone, that. Someone, yeah. It's interesting you say that she lives a very quiet life because you're spot on. Mm. And I always think of her in the same way, um, in that sense, as Kate Bush and your PJ Harvey, in that they don't just, they don't do interviews really or very rarely um, and live quiet, li- uh, quiet life. Um, Sade in Gloucestershire, your um, PJ. Harvey and um, Kate Bush in Dorset. Well, they all seem to like to go down to the West Country, they don't do, they? That don't seems they? the thing to yeah. do. And but when in terms of sort of Sade's um, sort of being quiet as well, after Diamond Life, she had the Promise, which Promise, which came out the next year, and Stronger Than Pride, that came out in 1999, mm. and then Love Deluxe in 20, sorry, in 1992, and then she had an eight-year gap before Lovers mm. Rock in 2000, then a ten-year gap before Soldier of Love, and no record since. So I don't mm. know. If she has officially semi-retired. I'm not sure, but. Um, there's been no touring action since 2011, so no. um, who yeah. knows? Maybe it would be nice to hear from Sade again, I think. She's put a couple of singles out in the last few years. We played one here about oh, two or three years ago. Oh, did we? Um, yeah, well, I'm sorry, was... so much has happened in the last few years. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's from a film soundtrack, and we both said at the time how how lovely it was. Yes, but that's true. They were just like one or two one-offs, you know? Yes, yeah, so she had, looking at this, it looked like she had one out in 2016 called Spring in the City. And then she had something from the film A Wrinkle in Time that was called Flower of the Universe. That's that came the one out we played. In 2018, apparently. So five and, years uh, ago we played that. Exactly. One. And then she had, a, there was a song last year. There was another one called The Big Unknown, and then there was this from the from the soundtrack to Widows as well. So she had a couple mm. of tunes, and then there was nothing for five years. And then this year, apparently, there was a song released called Like a Tattoo with Don Arcadia, of which I know nothing. So, no, me uh, too. I'll I'll go we'll and catch up with that yep, later. Too. Yeah, absolutely. We we well, made Team Sadie around these parts. Yep. Always, <sighs> Very much indeed. Welcome to the Parish Council. This episode 629. Mm. I'm Terence Dackham. And well, here she is, believed to have come second only behind Taylor Swift in Time magazine's person <laughs> of the year. It's Juliet Harris. That is so kind of you to say. Thank you, Satie. I suspect once again, this is a concept that only exists in your periphery rather than necessarily what we would term the real world. But I'm grateful for your support nonetheless. And also Taylor Swift 
Speaking of people inheriting or, 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 or coming sort of after Taylor Swift, there's a rather lovely sequence. You are a um, you are a uh, you are a, a quizzing fan. I know, Sir mm. T. So I wondered if you might be able to complete this sequence. I've just given you a bit of a clue. Jerry mm. and the Pacemakers twice. Billy <sighs> J. Kramer and the Dakotas twice. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones twice. Cliff Richard, the Birds, the Seekers. Frank Sinatra, the Trogs, Procol Harum, Long John Baldry, Dave D. Dozy McIntitch, Bee Gees, Desmond Decker, and Tommy Rowe. <laughs> I see, I was always on to it the first two or three weeks, mm. and I was thinking it was uh, to do with UK number ones. It is, you see, you're oh. correct. And it is to do with the Beatles. The correct answer to the end of that sequence is somewhat improbably Taylor Swift, because these are all people who were number one the week before the Beatles. The Beatles reaching number oh, one with now and then, course. you see, last month. Oh, how excellent. What a great question. Which is which means you also have this rather lovely and I think rather beautiful sequence, really. I don't know. We talked about now and then and the Beatles a little while a few a few weeks ago. But um, I think this is so nice that. For all that, as we say, the pop charts are increasingly strange and weird mm. because they've got this sort of, I was talking about this with someone earlier today, how streaming mm. means that the charts are basically all Christmas music mm. for the, for the, for, you know, for two months. There's then what come next in this sequence, Billie Eilish, Dua Lipa, Olivia Rodrigo, Doja Cat, Kenya Grace, Taylor Swift. The answer is, of course, the Beatles, because these have been the most recent UK number ones. Isn't that a rather beautiful <laughs> sequence? Again, a wonderful, uh, yes, yes, that's a fantastic stat, yeah. <laughs> sorry, well, just, to, sorry to derail, but, uh, no, but you I'm know, just thinking, and also you know, my just... apologies to Taylor Swift to somehow, as we often do on this podcast, bring this back round to the Beatles yet again. Oh, but um, how lovely, so maybe... The next person, time person of the year after Taylor Swift should, in fact, be the Beatles if we're continuing to follow the sequence. And who knows, as we've said so often, you just think there's nothing left to mm. say about the Beatles. Who knows what might happen in the next year? And it could be the Time magazine's People of the Year next uh, December. It'll nothing be John Paul, George and Ringo. Yeah. Indeed. I know. News this week that a sequel to Spinal Tap is to be produced in the next few months. Filming starts in February and a lot of people will probably be cheered by the news. But a part of me, a big part of me, kind of went, uh-oh, I'm not sure this is such a good idea. When the original was released in 1984 in this mockumentary format, we were all less knowing and certainly more naive. Um, and, and life and comedy were simpler then. And we live in a different world now. And it's hard, harder to believe in, in, in that sort of lack of self-awareness. And mm. also learning that Elton John and Paul McCartney are making guest appearances in this um, sequel adds to that sense of foreboding for me. Mm. But how about you, Jules? Are you more positive? positive in your anticipation for Spinal Tap 2. No, I don't see the point. I don't see the point in many sequels, to be mm. honest. So maybe I'm not the right person to be asking. But I don't know why people insist on... I think, to be honest, I'm probably crosser about remakes, in fairness. So mm. I will write that back directly and say I dislike remakes even more than I dislike sequels. But I usually don't see 
what hasn't been said already, but a very few exceptions, what hasn't been said already in the first film, particularly, and this is what particularly puts a, a shiver down my spine, where many, many years have passed mm. after the first film. It worked with Blade Runner, actually, but that is a very different film. Spinal Tap is one of my favourite films. I find it hilarious. It's very funny. It's the sort of thing I can watch over and over again. There is some crossover with The Simpsons, which is probably why I like mm. it so much, is that similar sort of humour. I think it's one of the best spoofs of the music industry ever. It's line after line that you can quote. It's so funny. Every time I say it to a, to a new person, they all laugh in different places. That's why I think it's a sign of a good film because there really is something for everyone humour-wise there. I really don't see why we need a sequel to Spinal Tap. Everyone involved is not what they were i suppose this is going to be 40 years after the original mm. the original film having said that um harry guest uh, sorry christopher guest harry shearer and michael mckeon have gone on to do um to do other sort of quite entertaining films which i've quite enjoyed rob reiner is back as well apparently i suppose it's amazing they're all still alive i know really? i suppose at least I suppose at least what you could say is at least it's the original people at least it's not mm. some terrible remake and i say that i hate sequels and i think they're ridiculous equally surprises happen sometime don't they so maybe mm. apparently if the sequel is said to mimic the style of martin scorsese's the last waltz the legendary concert film that documented the farewell tour of the comedian american group rock group the band maybe maybe that might work i don't know it sounds it sounds and there is something that is spoofable there, I suppose. There is source material that is spoofable. And who knows, maybe that might work. The the Spinal Tap episode of The Simpsons, which is probably at least 10 years after the film, was extremely funny. So who knows? It was in that that, that um, they talked about how well their records sold in Eastern Europe. And uh, one of the people said, nobody has benefited more than the, from the fall of communism than us, to which one of the other members of Spinal Tap said, maybe the communist countries themselves, to which the other member said, oh, yes, I didn't think of that. So maybe, maybe there is still material in this. Maybe this will still be really funny. Who knows? I, I, I want it to be good, but equally, I'm really frightened that it won't be. Yeah, we, we, as you say, we'll give it a chance and good luck yeah. to everyone in the new production. The the, the, the problem is, um, and I'm sure Rob Ryan is only too well aware, mm. of it, is that sequels have a history of producing absolute duds, uh, as you sort of alluded to. I mean, the, mm. there was The Sting 2 and Godfather 2. They were rather disastrous. But the worst example I could think of was the truly um, awful follow-up to Saturday Night Fever that mo- most people have forgotten about. Oh, it was man. Called, it was called staying alive oh, and it was gosh. released in 1983 I mean, john travolta you know reprised his role mm. um but it was six years after saturday night fever and they really shouldn't have bothered absolutely it was, it was hopelessly directed it was directed by sylvester stallone oh man i mean again that's not that's not necessarily <laughs> suggesting there have been some terrible sequels over the years haven't they well you know you wonders why things get remade um the exorcist 2 anybody Gosh, I'd forgotten that had even been I made. I know, exactly. Right? And a lot of these, um, 
it, it, uh, described by Mark Kermode as demonstrably the worst film ever made. <laughs> Though I do enjoy a Mark Kermode takedown. The Mark Kermode review of Sex in the City 2 in The Guardian is possibly one of the greatest works of art. It's considerably better than the film itself. It's so... It's so um, it's sort of infamous, um, infamously bad. Um, it was, it was, um, I think, I, I don't think it was done in the garden, actually. I think it was reviewed on the podcast and you can still hear the clip from the now, the now defunct Komodo Mayo's film review. I think it was something along the lines of everything that was wrong with Western society or something <laughs> like that. Um, it was, it was, it, I just, his, he just gets it on the nail every time. But yes, Grease 2, that was terrible. Most of these, Basic Instinct 2 was horrendous I'd as well. That David Morrissey was in it. Um, Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights, which uh, rather choked off the Hollywood ambitions of Ramona Garay for a while, who I think regrets that very deeply. Um, all of these sequels seem to have the same three words in common, which is, I regret to tell you, straight to video oh, or straight yes. to DVD, as I suppose yeah. we could call it nowadays. But there have been so many sequels where you think, why did they did that and do that? Not necessarily the second film in in the sequences as well. Um, I, I um, Batman and Robin was the fourth in the Batman films, panned with George Clooney in it. Um Friday the 13th, part five, A New Beginning. I mean, makes you wonder how it is still A New Beginning if there's been five of them. But anyway, they're also quite poor. Um, and also the brilliantly named I Know What You Did Last Summer, the sequel. What's the sequel called, Terence? Um, I Know What You Did Last Fall. I still know what you did last <laughs> summer. It's um, I I yeah. I mean, I, I it's it's you know the law of diminishing returns. I think applies here. Um. The remakes as well. Do you call them remakes or sequels? Space Jam and New Legacy seemed to be both, yet didn't seem to do very well when it came down to it. Good films can be marred by by bad sequels. The Sting had The Sting 2, excellent first film, terrible second film. Uh, the good fun golfing comedy Caddyshack had a Caddyshack 2. Oh, yeah, that, that was, was good. Oh, good. Was it? oh, Caddyshack was well, great. Caddyshack was great. They really should not have made Caddyshack. Mm. Alien vs. Predator Requiem in 2007. Oh, I really dear. did not think we needed that. Um I did not, and uh, having a look at this article on avclub.com, lots of these films I didn't even know have been made, which goes <laughs> to show how bad they are. Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, did not know there was nope. a sequel to the Blair nope. Witch. I think horror films are particularly um, mm. are particularly sort of uh, prone to this. I think it's, it's pretty, uh, I did not know there was a Zoolander 2, put it that way. So there, some of these films are really not. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, it makes you wonder also, it turns out, did you know there was a made-for-TV se- sequel to The Birds called The Birds 2, <laughs> Land's End, which came out in 1994? Oh, my Lord, no, I didn't. Tippi Hedren had a minor had a minor role oh, as, a, as another character. Halloween 2 and Halloween Resurrection director Rick Rosenthal, who clearly had form on bad sequels, helmed The Birds 2, but he's credited as Alan Smithy, which is how people wish to be credited when they do not wish to be associated. So uh, what can I say? There are lots of bad sequels out there. Very much enjoy also the name of the speaking of, I still know what he did last summer. What's the sequel to Dumb and Dumber called? Um... 
Dumberer and Dumberer. Nearly Dumb and Dumberer is what it's called. <laughs> when Harry Met Lloyd, which came out, was an Origins film that came out in 2003. So I admire some of the naming instincts of these films. Son of the Mask, the sequel to The Mask, which came out in 2005. Um, it very much is a law of diminishing returns. Um, Superman for the, the quest for peace, which was known as as not being very good, and perhaps my favourite bad sequel of all times, um, Speed Two: Cruise Control, in which poor Jason Patrick managed to be even less dynamic than Keanu Reeves in the sort of the the, the male straight man role protagonist. So there have been an awful lot of of bad sequels, and sometimes sometimes bad sequels get made to good films. Sometimes even worse sequels get made to bad bad films. Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, made even more insulting by the fact that Pennies has a grocer's apostrophe in it. Oh, Lord. I know, That's there's nice. much to be distressed by. Yes. Well, um, let's move. This talk of sequels got us thinking about the worst music-related follow-ups mm. and um, you know, the worst albums following a huge hit. And, of course, there was the Stone Roses' Second Coming, yes. which was, it was more like a crucifixion than a second coming, I think. Um, Frankie goes oh, to Hollywood. very good. Frankie Goes to Hollywood followed up Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. It was a really, truly dreadful and weird hard rock album called Liverpool. And um, Steve Howe from Yes played guitar on it. But sadly, the worst Mm. music sequel to a blockbuster must be Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, which was the much anticipated follow up. To rumours, of course, Lindsay Buckingham said he wanted to avoid making rumours too, which is understandable. Mm. But he tried to push the the band in a sort of post-punk energy. But Mm. it it just led to a really overlong double album of self-indulgence. There was one superb track I have to uh, give Mm. the caveat to, which is Stevie Nicks' Emotional Sarah. Yes, that is extremely good. But Rolling Stone called the album um, a mosaic of pop rock fragments. So beware the music sequel, Jules. Absolutely. There have been some... It's interesting. Everything's in the eye of the beholder, I suppose, isn't it, really? So so one person's meat is a one man's... A mother man's sort of a, a not me. Another man's a unpleasant meal, I suppose, as one would say. Um, some people I know very much enjoyed a day at the races by by a uh, queen, but following, but some people very much disappointed by, as they say, following up the album that spawned the epic Bohemian Rhapsody. This Radio X was always going to be a difficult task. Um, but, it was uh, a poor album, I remember. Yes. There were no, there were hardly, I don't think it was a hit on it, if I remember. I can't remember. Well, the best song, the, the most memorable songs that have, that have trolled out here is Tie Your Mother Down, oh, You God. Take My Breath A Day, The Millionaire Waltz, and Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy. So, oh, so, not, so yeah. Not so, many things no. there. Also, um, we've talked previously about you 2 and their bizarre lemon tour around these parts. And I've talked, I think, fairly recently about how, having previously been a bit frowny about you 2 mm. I very much got in, got in in, got enjoyment from the album Achtung Baby late last year. A friend of mine made me listen to it as part of our A to Z listen of albums. <clears throat> we we did an album listens across a couple of mm. years, and we took it in turns to pick a um pick a, a a band from each each sort of beginning with a letter of the alphabet. And he insisted on picking you two. Not many options available for you. It has to be said. <laughs> we listened to Achtung Baby, and I enjoyed it very much. However, I made the mistake of going on to listen to Zuropa, the follow-up afterwards. Um, 
as part of the recorded whilst they're on the never ending zoo tv tour which i think the lemon was part of if i remember correctly um as it says here siropa was put together from jams recorded at sound checks never a good idea the resultant work was confusing and muddled with the lead single numb featuring the edge of the guitarist on vocals this time you two have gone just a bit too far so uh so very also primal screens follow up to scream adelica the uh the big hit album that had loaded on it it was an unexpected huge success um run the mercury music prize the first ever one i think it was very unsuccessful uh, unexpectedly successful um give out but don't give up was basically the follow-up it had rocks on it which was a very big hit mm. but mm. it's it started to reveal the, the the primal screams um inability to avoid the traps of sounding like a, a rolling stones rip-off band at times i still mm. think they've made some great records since but um yes they have they have struggled to escape that shadow at times and give out but don't give up was a bit of a disappointment after the sunny day glowness of pri- of uh, their screamadelica album Yes, that's 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 very true. Coming next, should all buskers have their instruments smashed to smithereens and be sent to prison for life? And I would like the listeners to guess who it is that has hold, held that opinion and has expressed that view. Do you think it's Terence or do you think it's me? I think you're going to get this one right. I think they know. It's <laughs> <And laughs> the fact that you sound so pleased with yourself that makes it so good, I think. And the rise of the in-house one-sided documentary. That's um, all coming up. It's right after Gene Knight. Who do you think you are? 
always really liked that song since I first started getting into soul music through uh, through compilations initially because obviously a bit younger than this with the original scene time I really liked that um bizarrely one of my first big soul albums that got me into a lot of sort of female fronted soul KFC had a series of songs that they used on their adverts in the noughties and I first heard California Soul by Marlena wow. Shaw on one of their adverts mm-hmm. and then they released a, a tie-in to a compilation album and I bought I think there were two or three of those that I bought oh. there was also a, a nursing a sort of comedy drama on Channel 4 which probably isn't remembered by many that was called No Angels that was on for a few series maybe on may uh, sort of weekday evenings sort of 10 o'clock ish it was sort of quite late in it it covered what we have to call adult themes but um it had loads of 60s girl groups on the soundtrack there was a modern soul band called noonday underground that did the theme but it had loads of and again they released two or three of those compilations and i bought them all and that's where I first heard Mr. Big Star by Gene Nile, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. So uh, so introduced perhaps rather late to the party with Gene Knight, but I think that is such a great song. I think it's got such a wonderful strut to it. That was Mr. Big Stuff by Gene Knight. Amazing. It's amazing how one can discover music. You know, we would never have thought that, uh, you know, KFC's greatest hits would spawn such um, I mean, a I'm not a fan of the, I'm not a fan of the dining experience, but I do very, no, very much neither. enjoy their mm. discovery of soul in the noughties. Well, imagine you're tootling along some high street in England, uh, looking at all the closed down and boarded up shops and the rubbish bags that haven't been collected and the pigeons pecking at discarded fast food. Could be KFC for all I know. I was going to say, sadly not, <laughs> sadly not soundtracked by soul. Or is it, Seti? Oh. What are you about to tell me? Well, you'd be forgiven for believing that things can't get any worse. But then <laughs> the discordant guitar over amplified strikes up and some gormless twerp begins to massacre the musical works of Ed Sheeran or Adele. And these days, with the emergence of battery-powered speakers, it will be way, mm. way too loud. Yes. But busking, of course, is a competitive world, and your Egypt belting out chasing pavements or whatever will be competing against perhaps 50 yards away an equally inept saxophonist murdering Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Mm. And it, if you're really, really unlucky... You may stumble across a bunch of blokes playing panpipes. Um, with... We have big panpipers in the Hastings Town Centre for many years. Oh, they, they were they were up here for many years. Windsor, Guildford, Weybridge. You couldn't escape them. I, I don't think know, they toured. The they, they they all had matching. They all had matching ponchos in Hastings. That's as well, it. That's which I it. Was must be the same blokes. Um, you think so? Or there's a franchise or something. Well, maybe yes, that's right. You have to pay a hundred pounds a week. Is it? I, wa- I wanted, I wanted a, a pon- I wanted a panpipe franchise, but sadly, <laughs> I didn't have the funds, so it just turned out to be another panpipe dream. So, too. Oh, 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 you. thanks very much. That boom, indeed. Um, I know. I am panpiping the depths there, etc. <sighs> All the time, their their sonic dissonance will follow you as you swiftly return to your car to escape. Mm. But uh, clearly, all all buskers should have their instruments confiscated. And, and Jules, it seems the council responsible for Covent Garden are joining me in my campaign for prohibition of buskers. Well, I always in, I always enjoy your your you know your your massive opposition towards anything 
mm. that has not been sanctioned by you as being quote unquote fun. What? How would you feel if they played Todd Rundgren, Sir T? Oh, I'd be mortified because it'd be terrible. I'm sure they yeah, would probably. murder. Yeah, probably. I think that that's the difficulty, isn't it? Mm. So yeah, so there's there's a bit of a there is a if you pardon the pun pitched battle in <laughs> multiple ways because of course um the, the pitch is that is the name of the 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 bit that you license essentially. So yeah. um. Westminster Council, which is responsible for Covent Garden's buskers, um, they're fighting back against this bid to silence them. No one is just told to stop nowadays, or no one is told to maybe rein it in a bit. We all have to be silenced, Zerti. And you can always tell when people are silenced, because they comment on this in national newspapers. That seems to be the, the, the modern Oxford 2023 dictionary's definition of silence surely has to be now drawn in to say a person that has been silent to silence verb to give someone a platform in a national newspaper to complain about how they don't have a platform um anyway the um the uh there are there are various buskers in covent garden one could say that is the busking capital of the uk they are all over the show um it's very very loud i was talking about this something earlier that's extremely loud um there are entire bands with elaborate sound systems um, but there are there are limits that there are moves to limit them in terms of sound and the space they occupy and to enforce prohibitions on the use of and you'd think busking is just you know knocking out a few Ed Sheeran numbers naked flames pyrotechnics fireworks knives sharp objects or similar I feel the words or similar might be doing a lot of heavy lifting there anyway there's a nice picture of some man with some with some of those throwing knives um uh the um there's a bit of a debate because Westminster is due to week to discuss tightening the regulation. Um, a system they introduced a system of licensing in April 2021. I'm surprised it only came in then. Before mm. then, people could just rock up oh and bash God. out a tune. There now seems to be a licensing, which makes better sense to me because actually, for all that there that you dislike them, Terence, mm. there are many many people that give lots of money to buskers. I find it difficult not to occasionally, even if I've only got 10p in my pocket. I feel for people that are trying to knock out Catch the Wind in the middle of rain and and just feel the need to to to, to dip. And sometimes on the tube, if you hear someone playing, it's quite nice. Although I have to say, I had a massive freak out in my early 20s because I walked through Waterloo Station underpass and a man was playing the bagpipes and I genuinely thought I had walked into hell. Anyway, I mm. wish that man were wherever he is. It was just a bit of a, it was a sensory overload. But um, um, they're loud, these people. They're noisy. There are different people. Um, There are different views on this. Um, local businesses complain that it's very loud. Um, the uh, the one person says, fellow street performer Daniel the Magician asked the guitarist to turn down the, his volume so it doesn't drown out his own act. He says, the problem is the buskers with licenses. They play as loud as they want and no one does anything about them. Um, most of the acts don't have the perform license, but they self-regulate under something called the Covent Garden Street Performers Associations, unusual trade quasi-trade unions of our time. They're part of they okay, they're part of a tradition that dates back centuries. <laughs> Samuel Pepys may well have had the same complaints as you said, T, <laughs> although probably not with amplified speakers singing no. Ed Sheeran. I'm not sure who the Ed Sheeran equivalent would have been back in those days. Thomas Tennis. Quite possibly, yes. They often, Ray Fawn Williams often had to be told to dial it down, but that back a bit, I believe. But um, it's it's very um, the performers carry card reading machines now. This has become quite a um, 
quite a a um quite a sophisticated operation now. It's a very um so you don't very, get coins, you have to scan your card, is that you right? You tap your card if you've enjoyed <laughs> the show. <laughs> this particular street performer here, who is a um as a man called Daniel, originally from Poland, stuffing a long balloon round his down his throat while calling out to passers-by. Um, there's um, you have to stop people and then keep them away from the warm shops. And he said the stress made him stop doing it full time. He asked for a five or ten pound contribution, a request, as it puts it here. Most of the audience feel able to resist. Today mm. is not a good day, he says. I mean, I feel that Daniel might be setting his expectations a bit high. There are there are some buskers on the tube. What's quite interesting is I think there is a way possibly, because I occasionally am cheered if, some, if a good busker is playing, but as you say, a lot of the problem with this is quality. Mm. And, you know, as you hear, as you say, hearing the same old things and all that kind of stuff. I think the London Underground, I might have this one, but I think I have this right. I believe the London Underground, because pitches on the London Underground are very very lucrative apparently i'm not sure how that's that if that has been affected by covid i suspect it probably has been but um to the point where competition for these pitches is so fierce that you have to audition for a pitch on the london underground i think and you have to be of a really good quality in order to be able to do that and i i don't have an objection necessarily to street performers as long as they're good um i remember when i lived in norwich and the norwich of festival used to take place every year there was like a smaller version of the edinburgh festival and i remember the weekend that it started there used to be performers all around the city street performers and it was really exciting and it was really fun and i remember a man outside Gerald's, which was Norwich's old-fashioned department store. I don't know if it still exists or not. If it does, I wonder if it still has an Julio Iglesias record on its roof, which was thrown there by a street performer that was playing records he bought from a charity shop onto amplifiers and playing a game of hit, miss or maybe with the the (laughs) gathered crowd. And anything that was deemed to be a miss was thrown up in the air and landed on the roof of Gerald's. So I wonder what records are living on the roof of Gerald's now. So I have no issue necessarily performers, but like you, anything that is too loud or too bad is not good. And I think the London Underground might have it right here by with their auditioning process, maybe as well as having a licensing system. You should also audition people to see if they're any good. I like the idea of some uh, London Underground chap with his cap and his uniform, like doing a sort of Simon Cowell. Going, well, exactly. You're in, you're it's out. a no. It's a no from yes. me. Yes. I, I wonder if there's a committee. How do we get this job, Terence? How do we get on this panel to assess the buskers? Because some are really good, um, yeah. but it's just uh. frustrating, like you say, when you end up listening to to the same Adele. Um, yes, Adele quite. sort of. You always know what you're going to hear. Maybe yes. that's the issue. It's the imposition. That's what it is <laughs> with buskers that antagonises me. Because if I go to a venue, if yes, I go I to so. a, a club or the Royal Albert Hall or whatever the hell, it's my choice. And I've been proactive in deciding to attend. Anyone outside the venue can carry on without being forced to listen. But that's the issue with busking. They burst into our lives, whether we want them or not. And I don't. And I want my infrequent visits to a town um, to be peaceful, quiet and, mm. and free from panpipes, I have to say. Well, I mean, that I do understand that. Although I have to gently point out to you, Sir Terence, that the problem with the outside world is not all mm. of its matters and domains are under your control. And I know that is an upsetting and yeah. difficult and perhaps some might say wrong. I can't say yeah. 
everyone would say that but some might say wrong concept for you and actually sometimes life can be nice while it's unexpected i occasionally think of the people dressed as bananas running around Norwich market <laughs> I occasionally, in, in formation they were excellent yes. Occasionally think of your hit miss or maybe man and his records thrown onto the roof of Gerald's. Mm. And it does make me chuckle. Maybe, just maybe, there might be room for that. Well, it's very distressing that there may be an alternative view to mine, but I suppose. And I know that you find it, it tricky, and, but yeah, I yeah. hope that I've, I've dealt this in a way that might make you feel yes. better than you might have done. You, you have dealt with it very well. Yes. I'm very pleased. Thank you. Uh, with it seems an ever-growing range of television streaming services and also with stars like Taylor Swift and Beyonce keen to reach people through the cinema, um, there is a consequent rise in the number of documentaries, sometimes concert footage, sometimes behind the scenes or lifestyle oriented, um, and these shows. And it's it's clearly felt that there's a big market for this type of content. Mm. But Jules, you've been looking in, into how some viewers feel shortchanged as so many of these documentaries are in-house productions mm. to show the artist in the best possible <coughs> It, ignoring of course any awkwardness or dodgy questions yes indeed and it is something that we return to occasion because i've noticed and this article was interesting in the guardian by naomi may it's interesting to read this because i've noticed an uptick in a number of these sort of self-made documentaries, these official sanctioned documentaries. And I think we've watched quite a few of these um, and talked about them on the podcast. And we always seem to come back to the same theme, which is how much do you really learn if, it's this, if this is the official version? Unofficial music biographies, particularly books, are often fraught with danger because most of these things end up taking a side, don't they? I think of Philip Norman's shout, for example, and we talked to Philip Norman mm. the other week, didn't we? And being unofficial doesn't necessarily mean you get any nearer to the truth or that you'll escape other people's agendas or indeed the writer's own agenda. But there is a real explosion in these um, that in the last year alone, Taylor Swift this is such a list of random people. Taylor Swift, the Beatles are not next, by the way. Taylor Smith, Swift, <laughs> um, Pamela Anderson, Brooke Shields, Sylvester Stallone, uh, film director not of note, as we've learned earlier on, mm. uh, Colleen Rooney, Robbie Williams, and even the Beckhams, which we talked about, which we enjoyed, I think, the other yes. week, um, have been the first documentary, many of which have made, they've made themselves about themselves. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, Get this, Terence, it's about Beyonce, was released on Friday. Um, the singer wrote, directed, produced and narrated a documentary that turns her latest tour into a Scorsese-length production. It just makes me think of Beyonce rather improbably in the same way of Dennis Waterman as portrayed in the Little Britain sketches. Write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. And, and Matt Lucas having to gently explain to Beyonce that EastEnders has already got a theme tune. <laughs> Maybe my brain has just gone to the wrong place. I don't know. But anyway... It's very, um, this, uh, the Naomi describes this well, sanitized celebrity storytelling at its very worst. Um, so Netflix's Harry and Meghan, where they laid bare their grievances and their love story. Um, it, it, it didn't make any re reference to Meghan's first marriage and it didn't interview anybody. And I think this is a key point here, whose opinions mm. seem to challenge the narrative arc that the couple were presenting. We enjoyed the Beckham documentary, but his alleged affair with Rebecca Luce was scooted around and her life was upended yet again, I noted, by this documentary. And 
we also didn't hear anything about his um World Cup ambassadorship for Qatar. So mm-hmm. so all his UNICEF stuff I noted as well and the embarrassing emails that were that were revealed. And Renaissance doesn't wrench in the controversy surrounding Beyonce's invite only performance in Dubai this year, a country in which homosexuality is outlawed. Um LGBTQ loud um ally Beyonce, um, which she was allegedly um uh, paid $24 million for the performance, the Good. highest private paid concert in history. Instead, the film focused on how the musical on the album it shares a name with was inspired by Beyonce being introduced to 80s ballroom culture by a gay family member. No one joins the dots. And the reason no one joins the dots, and I think these these stars are all pretty shrewd, I must say, they've worked out that by making a film of themselves, they will be able to give themselves a wealth of access that no one else can give to themselves as a result of which if you keep hold of the narrative and do something big and glossy and if you've got the money and means to do so and all of these people are incredibly rich megastars that we've read out in that list that are able to do so all of those people i would say are world famous not perhaps not colleen rooney but still Mm. of the means that, that they're able to do that um and and if you keep control of the narrative and you do this big glossy production like like Beyonce has done, it's almost a sort of concert tour at the same time. You can keep control of your truth, can't you? If you give a big enough spectacle, people may not want to look elsewhere. And I wonder if that is that is what they're trying to do. Um, someone says here, um, Luke Hodson founder of the excellently named youth marketing agency nerds collective i'd love to be signed up to them sounds like my kind of people um he says culturally we're living in an ethically strange time the commercial value of talent means that they can't afford to do anything that runs the risk of eroding the public's perception of them brands are cautious enough about who they partner with they can't be then then be seen to align with somebody problematic um it seems like fandom's increasingly ravenous desire for content is kind of giving us this as well. We've talked about this previously, about sort of almost worrying levels of worship of of artists mm. as well. It's very, um, you know, it's, it's very much, even when Beyonce, you know, showed footage of like her having... Um, her having any difficulties with um you know vocal cords and you know her her cutting out her arizona show and having if difficulties singing and things but you do wonder um you do wonder to what extent is they you know are they are you seeing the truth there are a um there have been a few notable examples and admirable examples of people that have have not taken this route I can't remember if we did we watch this with the podcast or not. Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me. We watched the Demi Lovato one. Yeah, I, I think, don't remember was, watching that. No, no. I would put Demi Lovato's film that we watched in the same yes, in the yes. same thing as this. In that that it was made by Alec um Kadak, sorry not Kardashian Kashishian, who also directed Truth or Dare, which was Madonna's ninety one documentary, and this Selena Gomez film that was on Apple TV in twenty twenty two. He filmed her for six years as she was grappling with bipolar disorder and also the reality of being one of the most famous people alive. The film apparently is so intimate that Gomez has said she will never watch it again because it is so hard for her to bear witness. I admire somebody like that, that opens that level of access to them. It just goes to show, um, it's very interesting, the quote here from from Alex says, there was a nothing is off limits approach, but part of my job is to be delicate enough to know when and how to film things that may be uncomfortable for a subject. 
subject, said Kashishian, who paused filming at one point to avoid adding to her anxiety while she struggled with her mental health. It also let me see the growth in Celia and her ability to understand, take care of herself and rebuild her life. As we got closer, my ability to shoot without affecting the scene itself also increased. I think that's really interesting. And I think it goes to show that it is possible to make a documentary that is not made in-house and is illuminating without necessarily being damaging as long as you've got someone that is secure enough to be able to trust a filmmaker and a filmmaker that is sensitive enough as that chap was there to realize that you can that you can make good art whilst being sensitive at the same time i think that that sounds like a like a worthwhile watch because it genuinely sounds illuminating I think um, Paul McCartney was a pioneer in terms of the controlling oh, absolutely. The, the narrative. Yes, I agree. Much as much as we love him, yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, in, in order, in his case, to ensure no negativity crept in, because yes, he founded MPL Communications back in 1969, and it's still there in Soho Square, mm. number one Soho Square, and everything from the Frog Chorus right through to Give My Regards to broad street and ever onwards any documentaries or uh, concert footage whatever all released under the mpl umbrella ensuring paul is shown exactly how he wants to be seen and i think it is easy to understand i'm not saying i agree with it but it's easy mm. to understand why you would do that because yes, I, if you're paul mccartney why take the risk of a of an external editor or producer using the shot footage to I make you look so, dark yes. when you can maintain complete control over your image and when you were you were talking there about some examples i was mm. thinking of i think this is this is maybe quite a telling case um about oh gosh it must be about 20 years ago now elton john allowed um david furnish to do a um a sort of all-seeing documentary called mm. uh, tantrums and tiaras. tiaras yes i remember this and the what you see the thing is though if it's it must be 20 years <laughs> since i watched it but the one abiding memory of it is elton uh, um, behaving really appallingly yes. in the south of France and throwing this tantrum and behaving like a silly little boy. Um, and the flowers and spending ridiculous and, amounts of money on flowers. I was just going to yes. say, and the flowers. And those are the things that the two things that one would take away from it, whereas in, in, in reality it was um, almost certainly a couple of hours of lots mm. of splendid moments in Elton's career. But that's the price he paid for not at that point um, saying, well, hold on, you know, let's um, review this and um, keep it very positive. That was allowed to go through with um, probably bits that are now um, regretted. But um, and that's all mm. that one remembers. So you can see there is a case. You can see the Beyonce's and the McCartney's um, and the Taylor Swift saying to themselves, yes. to their people, well, let's keep tight control over this. Yeah, I do understand that. Coming right up, it's a, it's, well, it's a week of farewells, actually. Mm, it is uh, rather. Yeah. Benjamin Zephaniah, Jean Knight, Bridget Forsyth and Denny Lane. Absolutely. That's next after Lizzie Esau.
This is a track from her debut EP, which is just released, and she's coming to the last couple of dates of a British tour. It's from her debut EP, Deepest Blue, Lizzie Esau and Bleak Sublime. I really like that. As often is the case, you bring things that are new to me and I always enjoy them. Well, the news came through just about an hour or so ago as Mm. we record this of the death of Benjamin Zephaniah. Mm. He seemed to arrive from nowhere in Mm. the middle of the punk music time frame. And in doing so, became synonymous, really, with appearing at demonstrations and events like Rock Against Racism. Mm. And although he also acted in shows such as uh, Peaky Blinders, I believe, and and wrote novels, his legacy jewels will surely be his his raising awareness of racism and injustice through his poetry. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And actually, I think it says a lot about British culture at a certain time. I do worry that we are slipping backwards, I must say, in, in how, particularly in schools, I think, in how how sort of broad we're allowed to be because I first came across Benjamin Zephaniah on my school syllabus because we were taught some of his poems and I think that's incredible and I I think I had one of his poems as an exam once that I had to I had to um analyze it was it was really interesting I think it's so interesting that um that he started off in this very radical background yet his work was seen as important enough Mm. to be taught in schools I think that just goes to show how People like John Cooper Clark, for example, as well. Mm. And poets that, you know, poetry has this incredible ability to touch us, I think, in 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 strange ways that some forms of literature perhaps don't. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's the performance element. Um, I'm not sure. But um, I, yes, I, I liked a lot of Benjamin Zephaniah's work. I found him interesting when I heard him on the radio as a commentator. Um, and what a tragically short illness he had as well. I was very, very sorry to hear that. And and um, glad to have been introduced to his work at school. I feel that that, you know, for all that the, the powers that be complain about wokery and, you know, everything having to be changed and stuff. I think diversity on a, on a school syllabus and a diversity of perspectives is a very good thing. Well, gosh, I'm, I'm, I mean, we had Keats and Alfred Lord Tennyson. Mm. You had John Cooper Clark and Benjamin Zephaniah. I don't think we did John Cooper Clark at, Clark at uh. school, actually. But, uh, but we had Benjamin Zephaniah for sure. And... I think, and we studied people like we have Mallory Blackman, who was a writer, was a, a novelist, but a, a, a black woman on our syllabus. We had some stuff that was that was quite diverse and quite modern stuff, actually. Now, we heard Gene Knight's Mr. Big Stuff mm. earlier, and, and Miss Knight died at the age of 80 this week. But I was, I was particularly, I really wanted to mention her because I was particularly taken by this joyous quote from 2002, mm. in which she explained that um, through her one and only hit, she she didn't need to work. And she said, Mr. Big Stuff is better to me now than 31 years ago. All I have to do is sit at home and wait for the mailman. I mean, wow. that's, the, that's the way to do it, Jules. That is lovely. I really like that. That is. And I also like people like that who are able just to celebrate their own success and don't have this idea that, oh, we've got to produce a follow up. We've got to produce a follow up. Um. She'd seen very, and, and you know bands that play their hits halfway through a halfway through a festival performance because you know they want to get away from them. I like people like that. They just go, yeah, I had this hit. It's great. I'm really pleased. It was an enormous hit as well. It was um, an instant smash. It was um, let's recorded at Stax. Um, it was in 1971. It reached number two on the top chart, pop chart, number one on the R&B charts. Went double platinum and received a Grammy Award nomination 
for best R&B vocal performance female. I love the Grammys, so T will win them one day because they're so specific. All those, all so those many categories. categories. We'll have to. Um, very sadly, it lost out. But however, it lost out to Aretha Franklin's version of Bridge Over Trouble Water, which is one of my favourite covers of all time. So perhaps fair enough. Um, but it sold over two million copies and got a gold disc from the RIAA. She performed it on Soul Train. Sometimes, if you've got a spare evening, Terence, just go into YouTube and watch old Soul Trains. They oh, are absolutely no. incredible. Yeah. So good. Um an album with the same name was fairly successful. There were a couple more minor hits, but disagreements with her producer and the label terminated her involvement with Stax. She didn't seem bitter about it, though, as you say, from that um, that sort of um, no. that quote. And also, she um, she uh, she had more recognition um, in 1985. Um, she ha- she covered Rocking Sydney- Sydney's Zydeco novelty. My Toot Toot, and found herself in a chart battle with Denise LaSalle, who had also recorded a version of the <laughs> same song. It's a very unlikely moment in history. Sadly, she did not win. LaSalle reached the top 10 in the UK. But Jean Knight won. If you, you talk about battles and wars, you could argue that winning in the US is winning the war because she got to 50 on the pop charts. Charts. She then performed it on the TV variety show Solid Gold, and then it became her only hit in South Africa as well. So, um, I just I'm, I I just think she she you know big fan of her work, and I just love the fact that she was very much part of the Louisiana sort of scene. She very much celebrated for that. White's got awards and honors there, and I just like anybody who, like you say, is pretty open about the fact that they're just pleased to get royalty checks for the one hit that they had. I'm glad she's not looking that and it's right up there with Gion Warwick complaining that when she initially recorded by Heart, Heartbreaker by the by the Bee Gees, she didn't like the song as, at all. She really hated the song, but recorded it anyway. And as she put it herself, I cried all the way to the bank. <laughs> good, for, good for them both. Um, the, the death this week of Bridget Forsyth, it mm. may not mean a great deal to young people, mm. say, under 40. But mm. she was a, a huge star to my generation mm. through playing the uptight but i have to say rather desirable thelma yes um, fiance and then wife to rodney muses bob in mm. the wonderful bbc show whatever happened to the likely lads uh, this is in the mid 1970s mm. and this was much more than a sitcom it was a warm but questioning look at people in the northeast of england mm. re- kind of reflecting on a world of change all around them and bridget forsyth played a key role as thelma Desperately trying to move up from yes. uh, the, the working class origins to a new way of life of uh, dinner parties and cocktails and coffee mornings. And she was a wonderful actress, Jules. Mm, absolutely. I mean, so so when my my the heart said, oh, you know, this person's died. And I said, oh, I'm not sure who that is. When I then clicked on the link on The Guardian, I went, oh, I still were from The Lightly Lads. That is the only exactly, way yeah. in which I knew her, I'm afraid. I'm sorry not to have known the rest of her acting mm. career. But I was familiar with her work as Thelma. And I always rather liked the character of Thelma and, and, and the pairing of her and Bob. And uh, the whole show for me was really about Bob, I think, and about Bob's kind of conflict between the life that he wanted with Thelma and the life he was somehow doomed to with Terry. <laughs> And and but yet he sort of wanted that life as well. I think it's a fascinating sitcom. Most of the best British sitcoms, I think, are about social relationships and the complexities mm. within them. So and true. a lot of a lot of those come from the seventies and eighties as well. I think. Um, Forty Towers, Dad's Army. 
um, what I've had to like lads, and they all centre inevitably. When I say about social relationships, they mostly centre around class, don't they? Really, they I think do. most of the best British sitcoms, even the ones that I enjoyed in the nineties and the noughties, the Royal Family, Dinner Ladies, lots of those great sitcoms are about social tension and class tension, the good life, and you know the the posh neighbours next door, all that ever decreasing circles. Lots of these brilliant, you know, keeping up appearances. So many successful sitcoms are around social tensions and class tensions and she was brilliant at playing that role of Thelma like you say that was upwardly mobile it was before the age of the yuppie yet she was somehow a proto yuppie she and bob were sort of proto yuppies they they, were, really? yes. there were people that were trying to better themselves mm. and you know the sort of nice young people that you meet as opposed to the somewhat feckless terry and <laughs> um, it was it was yeah she was great and i'm i'm sorry not to know more of her work now I, I know there's a lot of criticism when people turn the death of a celebrity into a "it's all about me" anecdote of when mm. one has met them, um, but I don't I don't agree with that. I'm always interested in people's recollections of mm. interaction with famous or popular people, I and mean, you often gain an insight which is missed by obituaries. Mm. And um, naturally, there. So it, it's th- this week then with with the death of Denny Lane, um, long-standing colleague of Paul McCartney and Wings, of course. Mm. Um, that I am going to to make it all about me because I got to know um, Denny Lane quite well in the 1970s. I was a long-term, am a long-term friend of Wings drummer Steve Holly. And when Denny Lane moved into A.A. Milne's old house in Leyland, which is about a mile less from where I lived, my music business connections meant that I was often invited to parties and there were plenty of Mm, at the Lalem Lalem house. Mm. Now, actually, by coincidence, I was talking to Leslie Ann Jones about this only a couple of weeks ago Mm. because she's just released, uh, published rather, a book uh, about Paul McCartney's time in Wings. And we were talking about this, but uh, 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 specifically at this time, Denny was Denny Lane was married to a rather wild American model called Jojo, Jojo Lane. Mm. And it was Jojo that I particularly remember. Denny was a rather quiet, reflective mm. man. Jojo was the opposite, and she liked to drink to say the least. Mm. But it was the decoration of Denny and Jojo Lane's house right. that I want to mention. Because the whole house, and it's a big house, um, mm. It's um, on on a corner in Leyland in, in, in Surrey. In Surrey, if you mm. can drive past, you want to drive past it. The whole house was covered with photos and posters of Jojo. But most alarmingly, the minute the front door was opened, opposite you was a life-size photograph of a naked Jojo. Goodness Lane. me! Gosh, and I really do strange, mean strange, aren't they? Really naked. And goodness knows what the postman thought of that, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? What visitors thought of that. <laughs> Recorded I delivery, she... I need a signature. Oh, oh. Oh, exactly. Goodness me. This is this is nearly as bad as when I used to take people out canvassing politically. And I remember taking a parliamentary candidate out and she came back from having visited somebody with a glass fronted door. <laughs> door. And I said, how'd you get on? She went, she was naked, but she did say she'd vote for me. And I said, well, I suppose that's a score draw, isn't it? <laughs> really but um yes it's amazing how people go on isn't it really um i know that jo- jojo lane um who passed away some years ago was um i was um 
originally a groupie who had affairs with Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and many others. She had a lengthy Rod relationship Stewart. with Rod Stewart as well. I've, I know that there are some people that um, that just live a very out there life, don't they, really, yes. in every way. And she sounds like someone that was. I, 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 Danny Lane presumably just went along with it all, I assume. I'm not sure I born to live like that. Well, but okay. Leslie Ann Jones was talking about it. Her theory is that, she, that she, her aim was Paul McCartney. Um, because mm. she'd um, written to Paul McCartney when she was a, a teenager um, and, you know, had a sort of fixation about the Beatles. And um, Leslie Ann's view is that this was all a sort of a progressive series of steps to mm. get closer and closer to Paul McCartney. But I, don't, I should think uh, Linda probably had a, a thing or two to say about I that. I suspect so, yes. Well, Denny had been Denny Lane had been living in America and he'd been very ill for some time and sadly he died on Tuesday of this week. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. Thanks and, very and, much. and I think perhaps we ought to say at this point mm. that he did make some wonderful music with wings as well as being noted for having large photos yeah. of, of, of his naked <laughs> next wife around the yeah. house. Indeed he did, yes. <laughs> so it would be remiss not to... My apologies to cut you off, but do no, please thank you. No, not at all. I was just going to say thanks very much for listening this week. It's always good to have you along. So true, because I love talking to Terence, but it's nice to know that other people hear that as well. Yes. Now, provided she doesn't get deported to Rwanda, <laughs> Juliet go. should be able to delight you with her radio shows this week. Indeed. Uh, my, my barge will be in my house rather than anywhere it shouldn't be. Um, Doing lots of words from 8 to 9 p.m. So I believe that might be going out as we record this. But you can listen to that from 11 to 12 noon on Tuesday mornings. Or you can catch up after next Tuesday on Mixcloud.com and search for Noisebox Radio's channel. And Noiseboxradio.com is where you hear things dive. I'll also be doing a show called Smooth Sailing on Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. on Noiseboxradio.com. And as you quietly, uh, quite rightly reminded us, um, he made an absolute uh, mass of great music with Paul McCartney. So it's back to Denny Lane to play us out, Jules. I absolutely love this. I think it's amazing. I, I've always loved this whole album. I think it's such a it's such a great album. And um, it really does endure as one of the be- best records ever made. I think there's a reason why certain albums always sell year on year and they always end up in the sort of best of list no matter how time goes on. Um it was um it didn't sell very well initially, but it was uh, aided by two hit singles, Jet and this track that we were about to play. Um, it became the top selling studio album of 74 in the UK and Australia, as well as um, basically revitalising McCartney's critical standing, really. And Denny Lane was a large part of that. Um, uh, so basically half the group left before they went to record this in Lagos, Nigeria. So McCartney went into the studio with Linda and Denny Lane, and that was pretty much it really mm. so Delhi Lane very much the right hand man to this um things in Nigeria were not great the McCartney's were robbed at knife point at one point they lost a bang of song lyrics and the demo tapes and I did eventually manage to put this record together I think it's wonderful I think that everybody on this is great I love I think Delhi Lane was a huge part of this record happening as well as Paul and Linda and so it is a pleasure to play from Band on the Run by Wings Band on the Run
You've been listening to a Parish Council production.